Matthew 8. We are working our way through chapter 8 of Matthew, and today we find ourselves in verses 18, 18 through 22, which we're all familiar with this passage, uh, and it's repeated in, in all the synoptic—oh man, I can't talk. It's repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, a little bit different in Luke. Uh, most of us consider it the section, probably title it something of the, the effect of the cost of discipleship or the cost of following Jesus. Now we know the cost of justification is the blood of Christ. Justification costs us nothing. But it costs to follow Christ. Um and we don't really, not really taking. Well, yeah, we sort of see that in what we'll look at today because we're going to make this into a two-parter, verse 18 through 22. Because in this section, we only have two interactions, while in Luke there are three. Uh, so we're going to just hit the first one today. And a couple of things that pop out that aren't necessarily directly connected to the cost of following we want to take a minute to actually understand the idea of following um, Jesus and what that looks like um, but there's a name that Jesus calls himself also in this section that hasn't been said in Matthew yet and that's son of man and we'll spend just a minute on understanding that a little bit but also seeing how that connects to uh, what he tells in response to these two that approach him. So uh, just by way of introduction, we'll do that. And then I'll, let's read the passage and we'll jump right into verse 18. So let's, let's read all of 18 through 22. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is the word of God. Let me pray. Father, speak the truth from this pulpit. Teach us what it is to follow Jesus Christ. Remove any falsity, any untruth that we might hold in our heart relating to being a Christian. Purify your saints. And call those who do not know you to you by the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So jumping right into it, verse 18. Um, we notice in verse 18 that Jesus is noticing the growing crowd. 
He says, when Jesus saw a crowd gathering around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. He's gaining more followers as he's come off the, off the mount at the end of seven, um, the end of chapter seven. And as we started chapter eight, I mentioned that following Jesus is a major theme in the Gospel of Matthew. That word following. They followed, he, or he follows, or he wants to follow, or Jesus calls them calls them to follow, and it's also seen throughout all the Gospels. But that theme of following Jesus carries over out of the Gospels into the epistles of the New Testament. So it's not something that ends in the Gospels. Even, even with Jesus dying and people not physically following him, the spiritual reality of following Jesus continues, which ultimately points back to the truth that it was the spiritual following of Jesus in the Gospels that truly meant a lot. Not just literally physically following Jesus from place to place. And so the thing about this theme or this practice is that not only were they doing it here in Matthew 8, but you as a Christian follow Jesus. Right? That's a reality for believers forever. Um, the word, the name, the title Christian, we mentioned this in Sunday school, directly relates to the idea of following Christ. That's what we read in Acts 11. That's why we read that to begin with. Um, in Acts 11, you see the gospel going forth from Jerusalem and Judea. And it's starting to spread out as Jesus had told them to do. And they made it to Roman cities like Antioch. And the gospel had such an impact in, in the city of Antioch and the church being born out of the proclamation of the gospel that the people of Antioch had to name this religious group or uprising that was happening in Antioch. And what did they name them? Christians. The, basically those who were following this Christ. That's what they called these these people. Now, there's two things. This is, this is sort of just kind of setting the stage for the theme of following that we'll see throughout Scripture, because we're gonna. It's kind of gonna ride up and down as we go through Matthew. But there's two points I wanted to pull out of the situation that happened at Antioch, and then we'll eventually apply it to what Jesus says here, and also consider it in our lives as Christians. So the Christians in Antioch. Those who are following Christ, two things were significant. Number one, they were acting in a way that they stood out. They were being Christians in such a way that the pagans around them noticed that these people were different, right? I, <clears throat> now this happened. I can't. I didn't look it up. This this sort of conversation happened in another. Uh, pagan city but imagine so you've got some pagans out of Antioch hanging out a coppersmith a prostitute and the temple the temp, the guy who runs the temple of Jupiter right they're all hanging out and the coppersmith he's saying man I can't get a single Christian to buy these idols that I'm making and the prostitute's like I know the, the Christian men won't even take a second look at me and then the, the guy who's running the temple of Jupiter, the, the, the Roman god, 
He's like, yeah, I can't get them to come and pay any offering to Jupiter. The, the reality was that the people of Antioch saw how these Christians were acting. Now, the, the, it's not just that they stood out in their behavior, but their behavior pointed to someone other than themselves. Their behavior exalted Christ. So they could have been being good for the sake of being good, and I don't know what they would have called them. But they called them Christians at Antioch because their behavior was pointing to Christ. Right? There was someone or a way that they were following. Whose way? What way? Well, it's Christ's way. And it's no... Um, no point of irony that before they were called Christians, they were actually called followers of the way, Christ's way. You see that in Acts 9 and um, Acts 19. Um, the Christians in Antioch weren't standing out for the sake of standing out. They were standing out because they were following Christ. And the, and the beautiful part is that it was done in such a way... They, they lived in such a way that, that the name of Christ was exalted and proclaimed. And everyone knew, everyone in Antioch knew that these people were different. And they knew that they had to contribute it to this person, Jesus Christ. Hence why they called them Christ. And that's Christianity, right? Christianity is following Christ. That's why we're called Christians. Christianity isn't about getting saved and then sort of falling into this pattern that everyone has done over the last 2,000 years. Um, Christianity is about sitting at the feet of Jesus. Okay, That's what a disciple is and does. And a disciple is a follower. And they follow for the sake of learning the, the teacher or the master's way. You're a Christian. You follow Jesus. Christ. You listen to Him. You learn from Him. You want to become like Him. So, we've got this crowd. We started back in chapter 8 that are following Him. Jesus sees this great crowd that's been following Him. Now, He gives orders in verse 18 to go to the other side. Now, what Jesus is about to do, and He does this multiple times, is He's shaking off the excess. You know, you this is a, I don't know, this illustration just kept coming to my mind. You uh, you fry something, you put it in liquid, and then you put it in the, the um, flour, and then you, you, you want to shake the excess off because what good is the excess going to do? It's going to burn, right? It's not any good. You want, you want that which sticks. Jesus finds himself in many times throughout the Gospels where he's got this excessive crowd around him. And there are times where he intentionally and deliberately shakes off the excess or he says something indirectly which makes them go away. And in this moment, he's deliberately trying to escape the crowd, to small, to make his crowd smaller. He gives orders to go to the other side after noticing that the crowd is gathered around him. Now, just to see the, sort of the result, and we probably should have read verse 23 and when we read the passage, he says, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. The crowd didn't follow him. But there were a few 
who ended up following Jesus across the other side of the lake. And that's where he was going. But Jesus, and if, if a church guru, growth guru, saw the way that Jesus acted around crowds, they would give him bad scores. Right? Like, Jesus, you, you, can't, you can't say that thing. You can't be that direct. You can't make people feel uncomfortable. Or in this case, Jesus says, I'm going to go to the other side, and I'm going to actually make it harder for people to follow me. And the church growth guru is going to say, but Jesus, you've got to make it accessible. Make, make the gospel accessible to people. Don't make them work for it. This is Sunday, not Monday. We work on Monday. Let's let everyone have an opportunity. No, no, Jesus, this is the point. There's a cost to following Christ. There's a cost for um, being a disciple. And this happens again all throughout Matthew. Now, in verse 18, he gives orders to go to the other side. The other side of what? The other side of the Sea of Galilee. And we see that some get in the boat and go with him. And then in two weeks, Lord willing, we'll see what happens while they're on that boat. But until then, uh, let's keep on in verse 19. So he gives orders to go to the other side. Verse 19, a scribe comes up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now we got to learn something about this, this guy, this scribe. The scribe was no ordinary Jew. Okay, He's not just a normal Joe. The, the scribe, and you'll see the, the name scribe or the title scribe throughout Matthew a few times, and Jesus has a few interactions with them, typically negative. <clears throat> but we see this scribe who is a scholar. Uh, he is well known with the law. Uh, he is probably not just uh, a learner, but maybe even a teacher. And we know that at the end of Matthew 7, when they spoke, the, the, the crowd said that Jesus speaks in a way uh, with authority, not as their scribes, not as the Jewish scribes. So we understand that this man knows a little bit about the Old Testament, probably a lot actually. Um, and as we, uh, yeah, and so he, he overhears Jesus, more than likely, he overhears Jesus make this order to go to the other side, and he probably pushes his way up to get to Jesus, knowing that there's only going to be a few seats on the boat, maybe to convince Jesus to take him along, to pick him. And he gets to him and he says, Teacher, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He calls him teacher. Now that, in these two interactions, we see the other interaction with this other guy here below. The first, the scribe calls Jesus teacher. The second guy calls him, the second disciple calls him Lord. Now, it probably isn't um, ironic that the scribe calls him a teacher because the scribe is a learner. He wants to know as much as he can about God and the scriptures. So being a scribe, a learner, he goes to Jesus, the teacher. And he's like, teacher, if you, you can go to the other side of the lake, I'll go with you. you got to cross it. I'm going to go with you. But what's Jesus', Jesus response in verse 20? Uh, here's a paraphrase. That's great. You want to go with me anywhere because that's what he says. I'll go with you anywhere. 
No matter where I go, that's where you're going to go. Okay, but at the end of the day, wherever we go, I don't have a hotel booked. I don't know where I'm going to sleep at night, is what Jesus responds to this scribe. He says it in verse the end of verse 20 or verse 20 and Jesus said to him foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head okay you go with me wherever you wherever i go but we don't have a place to sleep and i think it's very possible that Jesus you know Jesus knows who he's talking to he knows he's talking to a scribe he knows that he's speaking to a man who understands the law the old testament And there might not have been a lot of people around him who understood what Jesus was saying here. Because he wasn't just saying, (coughs) um, well, let me know, I don't want to get ahead of myself. He begins by calling his attention to animals, foxes and birds. Now, Jesus talks about birds a lot. He talks about other animals as well, but he does talk a lot about birds. But But these foxes... And these birds that he calls the scribes' attention to, what do they have? They have homes. The fox has a hole. The birds have nests. Now, let me ask you this. Who gave the bird and the fox their homes? Well, God did. Right? God did. Do, Do we know how God sort of values birds? And animals and foxes. He has a valuation of them, but how does he place an animal in consideration to how he values mankind? A little bit lower, right? And he says that. Jesus says something to that effect uh, in Matthew 6, but also in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, he says this. Uh, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall from the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. So you're not just more valuable than a sparrow, but you're more valuable than many sparrows. So Jesus says the foxes have holes and the birds have nests. God values the animal and provides for them. Now, side note, to get that Evaluation, God's evaluation of man and animals wrong will lead you into the error of, I didn't really know how to title this, but maybe environmentalism. To, to, to put man and animal on the same level, it's, it's unbiblical. To, to say that a man and an animal have the same value in the eyes of God uh, is... To be outside of God's understanding and valuation of his cre- creation. There are more people who shed tears for um, euthanized animals than they do for aborted babies. So we have to understand God's evaluation or valuation on his creation. Man above animals. Now, as you push a little bit further into Jesus' response. He doesn't say, he could have easily said, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but I don't have anywhere to lay my head. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he uses language, he uses a phrase that I would imagine Jesus knew that the scribe would understand because he's a student of the Old Testament. And instead of saying, 
I, Jesus, have nowhere to lay my head. What does he say? But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, if you're not like the scribe and don't understand that statement, then I think this could sort of get lost on you just a little bit. The importance, the magnitude of Jesus comparing not just himself as a man to foxes and birds, but him as the son of man. Now, why is this significant? Son of man is a reference to prophecy from Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Let's all turn there and look at it for a second. Now, if you're like me, you've probably not read much of Daniel past chapter 6. Because if we're being honest, it gets a little weird and hard to understand. Daniel 7. Once Daniel 1 through 6, I guarantee you, you all know it very well. And if you read through the first six chapters of Daniel, you're like, yeah, I know that. I've known that since a kid. When you get to 7 through 12, uh, you realize, I don't know these stories. They're not really stories. We've gone from stories to visions and prophecies made by Daniel. Look at verse 13. I saw Daniel speaking about uh, his vision and, and this prophecy. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days. Now, when we see in the Old Testament the phrase the ancient of days, we know we're talking about God. All right? And we could assume the Father. And he, the Son of Man, was presented before him, the ancient of days. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus makes that statement to that scribe, and he wants this phrase, this passage, to run through that scribe's head. There's no reason, other reason why for him to call himself the Son of Man. Now consider the chart of God's valuation on creation. Animals, here. Mankind, here. Who do you think would be above that? The Son of Man. You see that? But what does he say? He tells the scribe who wants to follow him wherever he'll go. The foxes have holes. The birds have a nest. I'm the son of man. And I am going to be given dominion and glory and kingdom. All people's nations language will serve me. My dominion is an everlasting dominion. And nothing will pass from it. My kingdom will not be destroyed. And I have nowhere to sleep tonight. And that would have blown his mind. That the son of man. Has no home today. This is. Who I am is what Jesus was trying to tell this scribe. This is what's coming to me. A dominion, a glory, a kingdom that will be forever. 
but I have nowhere to rest my head. I've basically, Jesus could say, I've basically been forced out of my hometown. The crowds around me here in Capernaum are pushing me out. What would a high king do if he was forced out of his castle? He would go and get another one. He would demand quarters, acquire a bed. He would say, I have great authority. Give me a room. But Jesus, as the Son of Man, in all of His authority, partakes of His ministry through humiliation and humbleness. And this is how He came into the world. When He was born, did He have a place to rest His head? No. There was no room for him in the end, and there would be no room wherever he would go. And he would not force himself to quarters, to a bed. Part of, part of me, now, we, we don't know the result of this conversation. And we don't know if the scribe was genuine or not. He could have literally said, sounds good, sign me up. But we don't get that response. We don't know. But there could be... And part of me in, my, in the back of my mind makes me think that this scribe is expecting grandeur or fame if he's to follow Jesus. Because scribes are, are really well known with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Israel. And they had all sorts of pomp and circumstance. They took the best seats in the synagogue, right? They wore the best uh, clothes and cloaks and had the right tassels. And so it's very possible that this scribe understood that, hey, this guy's a teacher beyond teachers. Maybe there's a good life for me following him. Now, it doesn't say that as a very good possibility. But instead, Jesus says to him, it's not all that glamorous, son. He's like, I don't, I don't even get the surety of a hole or a nest like the, like the wildlife. But he's telling him, if you follow me, if you come with me to the other side, this will be your lot as well. If you follow me, there will be uncertainty about tomorrow as pertains to the physical. Notice the, the thing that was uncertain about Christ was the physical, where he would lay his head. But what was dead set? In the scriptures, the truth of the prophecy of the Son of Man. That was concrete. And now maybe Jesus was giving him a hint. The scribe was like, yeah, it's not going to be any fun at bedtime. But guess what? Compared to that, whoo, just wait. We read it in Sunday school. Wait for the revealing of the glory of Jesus, the Son of Man. Maybe that was an indication because Jesus would find himself asleep in a tomb, right? He would find himself a place to rest, but just for a few days. He would find himself sacrificed for sin, taking on the wrath of God. He would sleep in the grave, but after that it would be for certain that that prophecy would be fulfilled, that he would be raised, and that he would be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and all peoples 
would serve him and it would be an everlasting dominion that would, will not pass away and a kingdom that will not be destroyed. And if the scribe would follow him in that uncertainty of the physical condition of his life, what he would eat, what he would wear, what he would sleep, if he would follow the way of Jesus, the Son of Man, he too would inherit that kingdom. Revelation 14 speaks of Jesus as the Son of Man, and we won't... We won't look at it. Go home and study it. Uh, It speaks of Jesus, the Son of Man, the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, standing along with Him, 144,000. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot of concrete interpretations of Revelation, but I don't take that 144,000 as a literal uh, amount of people. But I see that as the symbolic representation of the fulfillment of Daniel 7 of those across the people's language, tribes, and nations that will serve him in an everlasting kingdom. And do you know how John describes those 144,000? It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Wherever he goes, we will follow. Even if we don't have anywhere to lay our head. No matter what is in front of us physically, we will follow him wherever he goes. So here's some questions to ask you this morning as we wrap up. Number one, do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth lived? Do you believe he walked this earth? Yes. Amen. Number two, do you believe that he died as the scripture said upon a Roman cross? Peter paraphrased it this way. He was plotted against by the Jewish leaders, handed over to the lawless men of Pilate and and his soldiers, executed, crucified. But all of that was God-ordained because God sent his son to live a righteous life and to die a sacrificial death as the Lamb of God who take away the sins of the world. Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sin? Amen. I hear a lot of amen from the kids. Amen. Amen. Do you believe that he suffered and died in your place? Number three, do you believe that this man, also being the Son of God, laid in the grave, but on the third day rose from the dead and walked out of the tomb? In doing so, he justified his words, his teaching, his life, and confirming his death as the only atonement for your sins, showing that he was the true and only mediator between God and man. And number four, Do you believe that he ascended to heaven and he was presented before the Father, the Ancient of Days, and in that, being risen from the dead, not being held by the grave, he had been given an everlasting dominion, glory, and kingdom, and will never be destroyed. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of Daniel 7? He is the Son of Man. And if you believe it, if you believe him, then be a Christian. Follow him. Don't just name it. Don't just wear it as a title. But live it. Be a Christian. Walk along the way. And let the world see that you are a Christian. We need to use that name a little bit better than what we do. We are Christians following Christ. Right? Not Christians who go to church or Christians who got baptized or Christians who got saved or Christians who vote this way or Christians who vote that way. But we are Christians who show the world that we are light, 
We are salt because we follow the ways of Christ. He is our master. We are his student. He is our teacher. We are the learners. Now, what does that look like? How do we do that? Number one, we live in the hope of this eternal inheritance, the one that we will, we will receive with him. And when we live in this hope of this eternal inheritance, this eternal kingdom, we live willing to give up anything. We'll, we'll give up anything that is physical. There is nothing in this world that we will miss out on. But we can give up everything that this world has to offer because of the hope of the eternal kingdom that the Son of Man has been given. And this scribe, it was a place for this scribe. Uh, his hope was a place to lay his head. Or I'm, I'm sorry. The thing that he could miss out on was a place to lay his head. But for you, it may be turning down a promotion uh, because the potential of unethical requirements at that job. Or it might mean that you are not being counted as a cool kid because you follow Christ and they call you Christian. It might hinder you from being invited to certain social functions or parties or get-togethers, but that's okay because they point at you and call you Christian. And when they call you Christian because of the way you act, what are they doing? They are exalting Christ even in their sin when they call you Christian. Now, these days, in these parts, we get singled out by other Christians. And they tend to call us weird Christians. Why? Because we believe the Word of God. We don't just call ourselves Christians, but we act like Christians. We're not following the world, drifting along with it, but we stand fast and remain on His truth. And so even when Christians call you a Christian, the Lord is glorified. And it's all okay. Why? Because you are in fellowship with the Son of Man. And He will never leave you nor forsake you. And also because you will reign with Him with the Son of Man for all eternity. So we live in the hope of the eternal kingdom, of the eternal inheritance. But also we live by faith. We live by faith, understanding that Jesus is not calling us to not sleep. He's not saying you can't go to bed. He's not saying you can't own a bed. He's not saying that you've got to forget all the physical things. No, we must not forget the truth that he already taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he said in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That's the physical stuff, right? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Yes. And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Scribe, are you being anxious about we're going to sleep tonight? You being anxious about us where we sleep tonight isn't going to make a bed appear. Are you being anxious about the things of this world aren't going to solve the problems? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, meaning it's burn up, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith. 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? What will they think about us? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own troubles. Seek after the kingdom that is everlasting. Seek after the kingdom that God, that, that God has given His Son. Seek after the King of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Does that mean you don't plan? Does that mean you don't prepare? Well, Proverbs 15 says, Plan fails for lack of counsel, but, w- but with many advisors they succeed. Psalm 20 says, May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. Your plans and preparations must be founded on top of seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. When you plan and prepare like a Christian, you get it. When you plan and prepare like a Christian, means you put Christ first and his kingdom first. You will be freed of all your anxieties. There's no reason to worry. The world will see you and know they are Christians. They are following Christ wherever he goes. And where did he go? And where shall we follow him? Well, Mark says it. To us this way as he speaks of the Son of Man. Where do we follow the Son of Man? Mark 8, 31. This is how we'll finish. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, keep in the back of your mind what Daniel 7 says about the Son of Man. Whenever you read the Gospels again and you see the word Son of Man, think about that prophecy and what he has received. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. That puts suffering in a whole new perspective. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples... Those who are following, he, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Where did the Son of Man go? The cross. Where do we follow him to? The cross. And what does that look like? Humility. Self-denial. The Son of Man receives dominion, glory, a kingdom, because he lost his life. And what must we do? Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Losing your life for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Perhaps it might be losing a night of sleep to help a Christian, a brother or sister, or or share the gospel all night long with an unbeliever. Perhaps it's finding yourself in a foreign nation proclaiming the gospel to an unreached people group. Maybe it's taking a stand for Christ and truth in your workplace. 
Maybe that's losing your life for the sake of Christ. Maybe it's giving the rest of your life to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. As we follow Christ as disciples, the last statement, we have to remember this truth that Jesus spoke. Hear this one. A disciple, a follower, is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus. For the Son of Man who came... Not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. We thank you for the gospel, for your gospel that you have brought to us, that you have called us to follow Jesus, that you have not just called us, but you have equipped us with your spirit. And so we we praise you, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Without any one of you, we would be lost and condemned. And so praise be to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's stand and sing one last hymn, number 281, Jesus Paid It All.